Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. And we read this. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever been ignored? Most of us probably have at some point. When I was younger, I was terribly shy in school. Part of this was the sheer number of students. I grew up in Gwinnett County in the 1990s, which was this time of sort of exponential growth. Everybody was moving into the suburbs. And so our schools didn't just have a few hundred people here and there. It was several thousand divided up into very large classrooms. Now, it made it difficult to make, much less maintain, friendships, especially for people like me who were very, very shy. Um, I liked, you know, if I had a choice, I would have just read a book and stayed away from everybody else. Um, That was kind of who I was. Now, I wasn't that worried about being popular, but every now and then, circumstances kind of conspired to make you feel less than human, like less than valued, that you were not important. One day, a group of people I sort of knew waved at me and smiled, beckoning me to come over. I was kind of surprised. I was like, this is unusual. This doesn't normally happen to me. I'm a shy kid. This is odd. And so I started walking in their direction. But then I realized that they weren't actually waving at me. They were waving at their friend that was right behind me. And so uh, I kind of, you know, wanted to melt into the background. But then what was even worse was I realized nobody really noticed that I had started to move. Right? So I hadn't even made a fool of myself except to myself. I was the only person who was embarrassed. was just me. I was already invisible. And in that moment, I didn't feel valued. I felt ignored. I felt an unimportant face in the crowd. I was just some random person in the background of their story. Sadly, this world often teaches us that we don't matter. Whenever someone yells at us in traffic or forgets an anniversary or birthday, we feel small and unimportant. Modern life makes this worse by reducing value, our our value to the attention that we we receive on social media or indulging our worst tribal instincts. We are reduced or we reduce others to a particular voting demographic, some ill-defined group rather than an actual person with 
with valid needs and desires and and hopes and dreams. Worse yet is that we participate in this kind of dehumanization. We do this casually uh, every sports season, right? Declaring anybody who cheers for this or that team are like, our fans would never behave like that. But those fans are the worst. I cannot believe. I would never be a, you know, fill-in-the-blank fan, right? All of us act like that. It's even, you know, it gets overwhelming when you actually go to a game. We generalize so much about others with such little information, assuming the worst about other people simply by what part of the country they come from or random details of their background or their favorite music or movie or any kind of loose association we can imagine. I remember when I moved to Tennessee from Pittsburgh, people thought that I was, I was a Yankee, and I th- that was like, it was very strange. They said, well, you're from the North. I said, well, actually, I grew up in Atlanta, but okay, sure, that's fine. We do this on a political scale so often, it's hard for us to imagine those on the other side of an issue or some debate aren't our sworn enemies, but honest people who are probably just trying their best, and more importantly, no matter where they stand or what they say, they are also created by God and bear his image. Of course, this behavior isn't unique to recent history. We have always distorted the value of other people because of the sin that rests inside us. Theologian uh, uh, Michael Quineau writes, The fall of man... The fall of man consisted in seeking after his own image rather than that of God. This egocentric tendency is what turns man into a diabolical being, meaning separated from others and no longer a person in in communion either with God or other people. Paul describes this kind of a life, a life consumed by selfishness in Titus 3, Running before we knew Jesus, we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sin so deeply distorts our vision, we fail to see the image of God in all people. And when that happens, we end up disregarding their eternal value. But as we see in our scripture today, Jesus shows his children how to put people first. Now, this story begins after Jesus heals a demon-possessed man in the town of Gerasene on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, If you remember that story, the people of that town were upset that Jesus had driven demons into a herd of pigs, and they rushed off a cliff into the sea. And so the people said, this is not great. Can you please leave? You're, you're really, you know, worrying us. This is not normal. So Jesus and his disciples sailed back to Capernaum, which is on the other side of the sea, um, which served as a home base operating out of one of the disciples' homes. I think Simon Peter had a home there, or a family member did. Even at this early point in the gospel, Jesus had begun to make waves with miraculous healings and exorcisms, as well as teachings and public debates with the religious leaders of the day. His arrival in Capernaum then uh, caused a bit of an uproar. He didn't exactly publish tour dates. People didn't know that he was coming, but a crowd had already gathered to see what Jesus would do next. 
So in quick order, this is what happens before we get to our story. He heals and forgives a paralyzed man. He calls Matthew to become a disciple, and he answers questions from his cousin John's disciples about fasting. With every uh, event that occurs, the crowd swells and increases in number. And then in the middle of this sort of uproar, Jairus, a leader at a local synagogue, pushes his way to the front and throws himself on the ground before Jesus with a simple request. Request. Jairus' young daughter, Luke in another uh, gospel tells us that she was 12 years old, has died, has just died. And if Jesus came and put his hand on her, Jairus believes she would live again. Now, a few things here are worthy of our notice. First, this man held a leadership position in the synagogue, which, uh, which meant even at this point, he was theologically, spiritually, and politically aligned against Jesus in almost every way. The teaching of Jesus directly challenged the authority of the established religious leaders. The fact that he not only healed, but forgave a man who was paralyzed uh, was very alarming to the Pharisees. It, it made them very uh, frustrated because forgiveness is not something man can do, but only God. He was such a threat to everything they hold dear. The Pharisees begin plotting to kill Jesus just a few chapters later in Matthew 12. For this religious leader to set aside, to set every reservation aside, to risk losing his job, his reputation that he earned and protected, connections to the wealthy and influential of Jewish society in Israel revealed the depth of his despair. His daughter had died. So he ran to Jesus, the man who could bring the dead back to life. But then Jesus, who never receives a warm welcome from any religious leader, goes to help him anyway. The man's opposition to Jesus does not diminish the love that Jesus has for him. Now, Jesus could have said, look, you're part of the, the, a group that really dislikes me. I know what's going to be happening later on. I don't really want to help you. He might, this man would have been considered an enemy, but Jesus loves him still and desires to save his daughter. Paul describes this posture of mercy in Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, while we were antagonistic to God's movement and activity in the world, Christ died for us. The second thing we should notice is this. Throwing himself on the ground to beg for mercy reveals his desperation. N.T. Wright, uh, scholar N.T. Wright, relays the importance of holding an official position in the synagogue at that time. Normally, such people would keep their dignity. They would walk with a measured tread and speak calmly to those they met. They had a social status to preserve. But before he knows what he's doing, this official rushes out of his house, down the road to where Jesus stands with a crowd of people and throws himself down on the dusty road right there in front of all his neighbors. All this official cared about was that his daughter might be saved. God often uses desperation to remind us we always can go to him. 
George MacDonald wrote, How often we look upon God as our last and feeblest resource. We go to him because we have nowhere else to go. Then we learn the storms of life have driven us not upon the rocks, but the desired haven. Third, <coughs> excuse me. Third, Jesus immediately goes with the man to save his daughter. For Jesus, there is never an argument or debate about what he needs to do. Needs to do. He gets up to help because conquering death and filling people with new life is exactly what Jesus has come to do. Dane Ortland, Dane Ortland says, left to our own natural intuitions about God, we will conclude that mercy is his strange work in judgment, his natural work. Rewiring our vision of God as we study scripture, we see judgment is actually his strange work and mercy his natural. Not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring loaded, and divine mercy is slow to build, but it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. The readiness that Jesus shows to save and rescue reveals how deeply our God loves each of his children, even those potentially working against him. So moved, Jesus goes with the man, and then the crowd follows. They go too. Luke says so many people pressed against Jesus and the disciples, Jesus was almost crushed. But among the people jostling and bumping into Jesus, trying to introduce themselves or have him kiss their babies, one touch came from a woman burdened with similar desperation. When she quietly, covertly touches the hem of his cloak, a miracle occurs. Healed from a disease that kept her enslaved for over 12 years, this miracle is unique amongst the ministry of Jesus in that she touches him first. Again, several things here are worth noticing. First, Matthew describes the woman's condition as unclean and isolating and incurable. This woman would have been declared unclean by Levitical law. Leviticus 15 says that she would never be considered clean until her bleeding stops. But it hadn't stopped for over 12 years. There had been no relief for her in terms of uh, that expectation. This status would have also left her completely isolated in the community. The law prevented others from going near her because her presence, her actual touch, made, meant anyone and anything would be de declared unclean as well. She would have lost every social connection, her friends and her family, due to this disease, which was also incurable. She'd been ill for over 12 years. And Mark 5.26 uh, says that despite having seen many doctors in search for a cure, uh, she, instead of getting better, she grew worse. Second, this woman approached, approached Jesus as her only hope. Hopeless is not a word we use too often in our regular lives. We do use it on occasion, but we don't use it that often. Because most of the obstacles we encounter could, can be overcome in some way. Imagine then the despair and discouragement that this woman felt as she went about her life. 
and how the arrival of Jesus brought her hope. Somehow she believed Jesus not only could, but would heal her. Third, her faith not only makes her clean, but moves Jesus to claim her as one of his children, as his own daughter. When Jesus tells her to take heart, he doesn't just mean cheer up, but recognize I have made you new. You are now mine. You are an entirely different person because you have believed in me. That Jesus would call her daughter instead of condemning her for touching him without permission reflects the depth of God's love for his children. There is a storehouse of mercy waiting for the children of God in Jesus. Even if we come to Jesus unbidden, his door is always open. Even better, Revelation 3 tells us that he is always waiting for us. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. But perhaps the most miraculous aspect of both encounters is how the touch of Jesus transforms two people who were not supposed to be touched at all. According to the law, both the daughter who is dead and the woman who has been bleeding would have made Jesus unclean. It was against the rules for him to touch them. Their proximity to death and blood made them unclean, defiled, not to be touched because death and blood tend to naturally spread to others. If Jesus touched them, he too would have been made unclean. He would have been made unholy. But instead, the opposite occurs. Confronted with the power of Jesus, the power of death and blood to make unclean crumbles. His holiness, the holiness of Jesus, his wholeness, his goodness acted upon and within them, waking the young girl to life and restoring the woman to health and opening the door to rejoin her community. Now, this same promise, the same power, where we can overcome the world with good, extends to us in two ways. First is this, we too are swallowed up by the life of Jesus. In Christ, we become his sons and daughters because we too are freed from death. And we are invited to step into the abundant life he offers to everyone who believes. We are swallowed up by the life of Jesus. Second, Jesus frees us to recognize the humanity of everyone we meet, no matter where they are or even what they believe. In response to his grace, we are free to think more about others than ourselves because we are learning to value others just like he values us. Scott McKnight writes in his book, that churches embody the goodness of God when a church sees people as people and treats them as people by nurturing them to become what God designed them to be. People with names and histories and stories, people who are doing well and people who are not, people who are recovering from trauma or abuse, people who've had surgeries and sicknesses, people who are 
aging, people who are young, people who are rich and poor, and everything in between, people who are, in, who are wounded and in need of healing, who need a, encouragement or tangible assistance, the community of God, the people of God, put people first because they see every person as God's child. A few years ago, a documentary about Mr. Rogers, y'all know Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, uh, began playing in theaters. The film received, received pretty great reviews, because it, not because it revealed some scandal. It didn't say, you know, Mr. Rogers, you know, was an assassin at night or anything. It just said it illuminated the gentleness and the love of a man called to help children deal with their emotions in healthy ways. What most amazed people, however, was how he treated people outside his show. There was no difference in how he approached kids in the show and how he approached anybody that came across his path in real life. In an outraged world, this gentle Presbyterian pastor greeted every person he met with kindness and love. He took the worries of those he encountered seriously, patiently listening, because in the eyes of the Lord... You mattered. Reporter Anthony uh, Bresnikin shared an unexpected uh, encounter he had with Mr. Rogers in Pittsburgh when he was a young uh, reporter. Uh, He writes this. In college, I was having a hard time. The future seemed dark. I was lonely, and it was easy to feel hopeless. One day, I got into an elevator downtown, and there he stood. After gathering up the nerve, I turned and said, I just want to tell you how much you mean to me. He asked if I had grown up as one of his neighbors, if I had watched his show when I was a child. And when I said yes, he gave me this wonderful hug, which I wasn't expecting. When the elevator opened in the lobby, I mentioned how I'd stumbled on a show on the show recently when I really needed it and how it comforted me. Seeing that I was upset, he paused, undid his scarf, and motioned to the window ledge where we sat and talked. I told him my grandfather had just died and I felt so alone. And he just listened and showed me such love. I apologized for making him late and he was definitely late for his next appointment. But he said, sometimes you're right where you need to be. Church and Jesus, we are free to put people first in the same kind of way to walk alongside others, not as strangers, not as someone in the crowd, but as someone that God loves and we can love too. By embodying the same kind of love that Jesus shows to this synagogue leader who was probably pretty close to being an enemy. And the woman that touched his cloak, we are free to recognize the humanity of every person we meet. One of the amazing things about Jesus that we see in the Gospels is that he loves all people well. So as his children, let us do the same. Hallelujah. Amen.